0: This is the New Politics Podcast, recorded on the 8th of April 2020, and because during the coronavirus crisis, so many adults are working from home and high school students accessing online teaching, the NBN is incredibly slow, and because of this, we had a few audio recording difficulties during this program, but please persevere, we've produced a good episode for you. And if you want to know why the NBN is so slow and unfit for purpose... Here's a reminder from 2013. But there is one person who I particularly want to mention. We have a strong and
1: credible broadband policy because the man who's devised it, the man who will implement it, virtually invented the internet in this country. Thank you so much, Malcolm Turnbull.
0: This is the New Politics podcast, analysis and opinion on Australian politics and filling in the gaps left behind by the mainstream media. In this episode, we look at the ruby princess, one of the biggest scandals in recent history. And we're in the middle of a coronavirus crisis, but do our politicians need more scrutiny than ever? Yes, they do. I'm Eddie Djokovic, editor of New Politics.
1: I'm David Lewis, the hostess with the mostest.
0: We may be on the verge of one of the biggest scandals in Australian recent history and it's a scandal that has it all a big ship in the harbour secret phone calls to captains in the middle of the night ministerial blame games departmental incompetence denials deaths at sea deaths on the mainland money theft and cover-up it's the story of the ruby princess the large ocean cruiser that docked in sydney harbour not once but twice with passengers infected with the coronavirus And we've seen over 700 coronavirus cases and 11 deaths directly attributed to the Ruby Princess. It's a sad spectacle where New South Wales Health has blamed Australian Border Force. Australian Border Force has blamed New South Wales Health, which then went on to blame the crew of the Ruby Princess. The Minister of Home Affairs, Peter Dutton, then went on to blame the company that owns the Ruby Princess, Carnival Corporations. This is a serious mismanagement of a serious health crisis and all we're getting is a blame game. The public does have the right to know what happened on the Ruby Princess.
1: It absolutely does. 700 cases directly attributed to the Ruby Princess. There's all kinds of talk flying around about who was on it and why the passengers were let off. The blame is being shunted from organisation to organisation. For those people missing Rugby League, we're seeing some of the best passing happening as the blame gets passed. I'm sure if I was a recruiter for one of the Rugby League teams, I'd be looking at some of these people for passing blame. If they can pass football like they can pass a game, it'll be a great season next year. It's extraordinary. It should never have happened. Under international law and agreement, Australia has the obligation to help a ship in distress. I'm certainly not saying they should have been shunted off. And, you know, and the interesting thing too is that uh, refugees are in the same position. There should have been testing. There should have been a clear understanding of who was sick. There should have been mandatory quarantining for at least 14 days of all passengers. And they eventually did that. But as with everything with this crisis, it's been too little, too late. Now, the state is blaming the federal, and the federal is blaming the state, and they're both blaming the cruise ship. As I understand it, New South Wales doesn't control international borders. That is federal jurisdiction. So New South Wales
0: couldn't stop
1: the boat in, and it couldn't allow the boat in.
0: Now, it was also interesting to see that most of the commentary that was coming from politicians was that we don't want to play the blame game, even though that's exactly what they were doing. But it was very similar to what happened during the bushfire crisis recently. Today's not the day to talk about climate change. It's been extended here where they don't want to play the blame game. But I do want to see the blame game happening. I want to see blame and responsibility apportioned to the people that were responsible for for this. And of of course, we shouldn't have a situation where political points are scored just for the sake of political points being scored. But we do need to know what happened in this case and who is responsible because it's an absolutely massive health crisis and health issue that's come out of this. The New South Wales Police Commissioner, Mick Fuller, he's Scott Morrison's self-acclaimed bin man and the man of non-action on Angus Taylor's um, investigation recently, He has involved the Homicide Squad to investigate what actually happened in the Ruby Princess incident. But what do you think will come out of this? Will it be a serious investigation or will it go down the path of all of the other investigations that he's carried out? I get the sense
1: that these types of whitewashes and
0: cover-ups
1: aren't going to be effective for much longer. I think too many people have been affected. I think there's been too much... Not just people getting sick, but people who are now out of work, people who are now running businesses that suddenly aren't viable anymore because people can't use them for right reasons. I think a lot of the cozy old boys clubs are going to break down.
0: And it should also be interesting to see what the Homicide Squad does actually investigate. There's a number of critical factors involved about who authorised the Ruby Princess to come into Sydney Harbour, not once but twice. And it seems like it was Australian Border Force that overturned a decision to keep the ship out and allowed it to dock. But it's not only important to know who made this decision, but why they made this decision. Were there any commercial considerations involved or favours made. The owner of the Ruby Princess is Carnival Corporations. It's a massive multi-listed company which owns around 100 cruise ships. And in 2019, its turnover was $20 billion. It's not the only massive cruise ship company out there. There's quite a few. But the entire industry is massive and it seems like there's a lot of opportunity for graft and money under the table, types of exchanges, favours and corruption. There's also the links between Carnival Corporations and the Liberal Party. Katie Lay is one of the international directors of Carnival Corporations and was previously the head of the Business Council of Australia, a peak body with strong links to the Liberal Party. Now, Katie Lay, she's not a donor to the Liberal Party, but she is seen at many Liberal Party fundraisers and political events. She was also the CEO of Corn Ferry. That's a large consulting firm with major contracts with Liberal governments. Since 2013, they've received $3 million in consulting fees from the federal government, and they currently hold a $700,000 contract with the New South Wales state government. Also at Corn Ferry is Robert Webster. He's a senior director at this company and he was a minister in the Griner and Fay Liberal Governments in the 1990s. He's also a major fundraiser for the Liberal Party. So it seems there's quite a few connections and links between all of these major plays in the Ruby Princess incident and the New South Wales Liberal Government. It,
1: yes. The disembarking of the ship was strange passengers were told allegedly they had uh, eight minutes to get off the ship and then they just dispersed there's another story that went around was that the parents-in-law of Alex Hawke the minister for Pacific Island were on the ship and that was a factor he denied that in an interview to Catherine Murphy of the Guardian Catherine Murphy took that as a solid, firm denial. Others have been less accepting of it. As far as I can tell, and if there is someone out there who knows otherwise, with everything I say, I'd love to be corrected, but I don't think the passenger manifest has been released.
0: Passenger lists are usually confidential, so there's no real issue there. But the Larger issue is that the Ruby Princess was allowed to dock in Sydney Harbour with 158 sick passengers on board and in the context of what was happening with the Diamond Princess off the coast of Japan, which was roughly around the same period, you'd expect extra caution to be taken. On the morning of the 8th of March, the Ruby Princess docked into Sydney Harbour with those sick passengers out of the total of 3,000 passengers. They all disembarked that morning, went out to the general community, the 1,100 crew members remained, the ship was cleaned according to its usual protocols, it wasn't disinfected though, and 2,700 new passengers boarded the ship later on that day. And off they went to New Zealand where they stopped off in Wellington and Dunedin and returned to Sydney Harbour on March the 19th.
1: It's a very strange situation. And I think, I think there's even more to it. But what that is, I, I don't know. You'd hope that a Minister of the Crown would not allow a whole cruise ship off because his parents-in-law were on the boat. Given all these business links, that's a really interesting wrinkle. And you'd hope that, in, in general, that everyone is obeying the law and looking at the greater community good. We know that this doesn't happen all the time i think there should be some serious repercussions
0: well there should be there should be quite a few serious repercussions to come out of this there's also other areas within the management of uh, sydney ports as well so there have been allegations of theft of fuel payola to harbour masters for favourable treatments the international ports terminal it actually has very few customers and because of this, it tends to overlook a lot of illegalities from these international cruise companies. Now, we do have to be careful about what we say here because we might end up being a part of the bottom of the harbour scheme and I don't want that to happen. But it seems like there will be a lot for the police investigation to uncover here.
1: I think it is a, it's a complex and tangled scheme or a tangled web, which is going to take a lot of unravelling. Some of the things that we've found out May well be
0: innocuous and innocent, but until it's investigated, we won't know. You're listening to New Politics. You can subscribe to us on Apple or Google Podcasts, listen through SoundCloud and Spotify, or find us at newpolitics.com.au. Up next, politics and the coronavirus. What are some of the issues that are flying under the radar? Coronavirus is a -a once-in-a-century event and it's closing down local and world economies. It's primarily a health threat to the entire nation and, of course, it's the focus of everyone's attention. But while most of the population is focusing on the coronavirus, the business of politics continues and there's a few issues that are flying under the radar and issues that we do need to keep an eye on. The New South Wales Government has approved a new coal mine under one of Sydney's most important drinking catchment areas. This is the first approval of this type for 20 years and this decision was made just before New South Wales Parliament was suspended due to the coronavirus, no doubt to avoid scrutiny and attention. The Federal Government is also trying to make amendments to the Fair Work legislation as well, using the coronavirus crisis as a reason to reduce working rights and protect jobs. We've been criticised for scrutinising politicians during this time of the coronavirus crisis, but governments rarely miss the opportunity to use a crisis to their advantage. They will always try to implement their agenda, irrespective of what the circumstances are. Do we need to have even more political scrutiny during a time of crisis?
1: I think it's most important. And I know that corona has taken up a lot of our mental space, and that's natural. And in a sense it has to because we have to look after ourselves and look after each other and keep across what's happening with it and laws have to be passed and enforced and that's understandable. But we can't let them get away with stuff like approving this mining. That was just disgraceful. This is the government that, among other things, basically sold Barangaroo for 99 cents to a casino that is now foreign-owned, to which the New South Wales government gets no financial benefit or very little financial benefit. This is a government that cut funding to ICAC when 10 of its members had to resign from the party because of improper and corrupt behaviour. It is not a good government. This is a government that has spent eight years doing a lot of building but not finishing a lot. When they do finish it, it's disastrous. Look at the light rail we can't stop our scrutiny
0: i think most people have the idea that coal mining is something that happens in remote areas it's in a far away place but this is actually happening in in the city of sydney it's actually happening within the confines of metro, the metropolitan area of sydney and this particular mine is called metropolitan mine so that's i guess that's a that's a clear giveaway but the owner of this mine, Peabody Energy, it's the largest privately owned coal company in the world. It's based in America. It's been constantly attacking climate science and environmental protection laws. And in 2015, it rebranded its coal production as the cure to poverty in China and India. But more than likely, it's probably seen as a cure for their sagging share prices. They've received approval for three new longwalls under the Warranora Reservoir, and, and this is where they'll be able to extract vast amounts of coal. It's, a, it's actually a large reservoir which supplies water to southern Sydney in the Illawarra region, and, and there's great potential for the coal mining to interfere with drinking water supplies. The New South Wales government, it was looking for the right moment to approve this coal mine, and it waited for the right moment when everyone else is looking somewhere else during the coronavirus crisis. The other argument they make is that it's, it's about jobs.
1: But mining is getting more and more and more automated. The jobs don't last in essence, the jobs don't last. And the too close ties between miners and parliament has to be addressed. Scott Morrison carrying in the coal mine, Barnaby Joyce's financial backing from miners, and yes, it's not improper that miners have access to government but it shouldn't be more than what anybody else gets. And its motives and its influence should be kept under the the spotlight. This is both a very hard time, but a very easy time to do it. And I think as we get used to isolation and the news moves on from the day-to-day corona issues, how many more days can we have news of vaccines still not found, football still not running, Women's football, still not running. I think that there's opportunities for journalists, both independent and mainstream, to jump on this stuff and to start start the clean-up of what's been a fairly rotten society for the last 25 to 35 years.
0: Reporting of the coronavirus, of course that's going to be a big issue that continues for some time, but as people become so used to it and accept that this is... Going to be a normal process that goes on possibly for 12 months or 18 months until a vaccine is is found. They'll be looking for other news as well. It's not going to be just all about coronavirus. And as the public gets bored with this process, media proprietors and media managers will be looking for news stories to look at as well. So I don't think it's going to be a case where governments can just act without anyone looking at what they're doing. But federally, the Attorney General, Christian Porter, He wants to amend the Fair Work Act, and and Parliament is sitting today, and they'll probably go through the process of amending that. He wants to reduce working conditions and change the award system so it's easier for employers to hire people, in his words. But the Secretary of the ACTU, Sally McManus, has said that it's not necessary to do this, and there's a strong likelihood that some employers will take advantage of this to reduce conditions for existing working staff. Quite often, when legislative changes are made, it's very difficult to undo them. It takes a long time to develop new legislation. There's the political time and political capital involved in developing this. And a government is usually unlikely or unwilling to pass new legislation that supersedes their previous legislation. So we've got things that are happening at the state government level and also at the federal government level. And scrutiny needs to be ramped up.
1: They're using the goodwill they're building to be able to do these changes, which of course is a dangerous thing for them because goodwill is hard to build, easy to get rid of. You know, it's reputation. Takes you years to build a reputation and one silly decision to destroy it. We still have the neoliberal contingent, not including but not limited to the Institute of Public Affairs. Arguing that the economy is still the most important thing and that we need smaller government and that there are too many laws restricting us and free speech. When we've found that in fact we need a, a strong, stable government, we've found that the economy is very fragile. This virus had damaged the economy probably irreparably within two weeks. That's not something that happens to strong
0: concepts. Well, the economy is quite important, but it's also important that the economy serves the people that make up that economy. We Actually, we discussed this in our last podcast, but we think that the end of neoliberalism in its current form is near, and it will be replaced with something different. But it's also a case where I don't think that this automatically sees a return to something like the post-Second World War era. We are still going to see massive government investment into the economy this time around, but... After the Second World War, economies were rebuilt, communities were rebuilt, countries were rebuilt. It was the end of Nazism and nationalism at that time, but this time we're seeing something different. Governments will need to intervene in the markets and the economy strongly this time around, but if we're not careful, we might see neoliberalism replaced by the combination of government intervention in the economy combined with right-wing nationalism, and that wouldn't be a good sign.
1: Desperate times often bring in desperate politics. I know that there are elements of the far left who think, you know, we've finally caught up to Marx's ideas of revolution. I don't think we have, by the way. I think if that was ever gonna happen, that moment has well passed. I mean, I feel, speaking of, you know, the elements of the left who are wrong, the anarchists, we've shown that we need government. We need a supportive, benevolent structure that will support us in times of desperation. Living in our own little bubbles isn't working. I mean, it does for social isolation. (laughs) But in terms of how we interact with each other, how we get better from this virus, how we use the economy when the economy is now broken, government is the the answer. No one has come up with a better one. And, And that includes those like the prime minister who espoused smaller and smaller and smaller government. No one has said in the last three weeks, the trouble is too much government influence, public health, the private hospitals have failed. Three weeks into it, they finally said, oh, instead of shutting, maybe we can open for coronavirus patients. They were all thinking of shutting and I think 600 nurses were sacked. So that's a failure of private health. The privatization model has failed. I'm not opposed to private enterprise, but I don't like private enterprise running things that government really should be running because it's far less efficient. Government runs things fairly, if not efficiently, then effectively. Private enterprise doesn't. Hospital staff still have to pay for parking to go to their work. I find that outrageous. I hate it when you go to a hospital and they charge you for parking. And the argument is, is that it discourages commuters and other people who don't need the parking. There's ways around that without having to charge. It's just a, a cash grab. All this stuff is dead, I think. It
0: might not end up being completely dead, but it's less alive than it was before. As most of our listeners would be aware, we currently have a Liberal national government in office federally, and they're strong proponents of the neoliberal agenda. But they are introducing policies that even a socialist might balk at Today they're announcing three hundred, or legislating for $300 billion in stimulus spending. We're almost close to a social wage. Free childcare was announced last week. Semi-nationalising private hospitals. Now, of course, there are many riders and asterisks that are being placed above all of these announcements that have been made. But the government is already talking about snapback once all this is over. Now, we don't know how long it's going to take before this is all over, what it, And what that means, as I mentioned before, it could be 12 months, it could be 18 months. But that doesn't sound like a commitment to socialism or changing away from neoliberal policies permanently. If we're just talking about free childcare, semi-social wage, stimulus spendings, semi-nationalising private hospitals, just doing that for 12 months or 18 months, even though that's, that's a good thing to do, the government is already sending out this message that this is all only temporary as soon as this is all over we're snapping back to where we were before and that i don't think we can ever snap back to where we were before
1: no and let's be fair here the government doesn't want to alienate its supporters so part of that would be reassuring its supporters now you voted for us this is extraordinary times as soon as We can, we will be back to what you voted for us for. And that's, you know, that's perfectly fine and and reasonable. I don't think the rest of the populace is going to allow them to go back. I think the notion of the universal basic income, I I mean, I, I can see problems with it which are mostly to do with exploitation and, you know, money is only worth what it's worth. And if everybody gets $1,000 a week, those who are privileged will make sure that $1,000 a week isn't as worth as much as it was, etc., etc. You know, we're seeing that it, it's a feasible concept that might work if managed properly. We're seeing that public health is far superior to private health because the profit margin isn't there. I, I mean, I don't think we're going to go into a golden age of democratic liberalism that will be talked about in hushed tones for centuries after. Far from it. I think the small changes. And the other thing, too, is the long-term effect. Teenagers and 18-, 19-year-olds, and those who aren't in positions of influence yet but who will be, will be deeply affected by this. Like people were deeply affected by World War II or the Great Depression or the boom years of the 50s and 60s.
0: Now being in government is always difficult and hard work irrespective of which government is in office but some of our good friends in the media have been arguing that the most difficult part of Scott Morrison's actions have been to convince its supporter base that it's implementing actions that are anathema to the Liberal Party. Now, And you touched on this before but they're simply doing what needs to be done. Backflip, breaking a promise, whatever you want to call it. Scott Morrison just had to implement a program that is totally the opposite of his normal ideological position. Yeah. He's had a boost in the opinion polls. Now, in Australia,
1: we know we can't trust them, but that boost is in line with every other leader and every other crisis at the time. And I think a lot of people are willing to give him a go because we are in very much new circumstances. I'm not prepared to give him a go. I think he's had two... Or three opportunities to show that he's up to the job, and he's failed. And I don't see at this point that he's going to do any better. But I will—I mean, I will give credit that he starts—he seems that he's starting to listen to experts. So I will give him credit there, and and hopefully that will continue. I think too that his. More reckless actions have been hampered by the states who have jurisdiction over health and over health management. And Victoria, New South Wales, Queensland, to a lesser extent, have managed to stop his more optimistic projections, shall we say, from being made policy.
0: And that makes a lot of sense because the, the premiers of, of all the states and chief ministers of the territories they're actually closer to the voters when it comes to health and mm. education. Mm. So I can, I can see why they've been making the Prime Minister backtrack on all of these issues because they're the ones that will suffer the consequences politically if health is not managed correctly and the schools are not managed correctly during this crisis. Yeah,
1: exactly. I know the arguments, but the schools should have shut by now and gone to online learning. And I know the arguments against that. but And when I say shut, that... Those parents who need to have their kids go to school can be supported in that way with skeleton staff, etc. I think New South Wales has really moved towards that independently, all the schools independently doing that, but it should have happened a lot more before then. Scott Morrison saying schools are safe. I don't know that a school has ever been safe. They're petri dishes, five or six hundred children. If you're a germaphobe, it's a, a germaphobe's nightmare at school.
0: It would be remiss of us not to mention George Powell. He was found guilty of historical sexual abuse charges by a jury in Victoria in 2018. That was 12-0 as far as the jury was concerned and a subsequent appeal was knocked back in the Victoria Court of Appeal. But he found more favour in the High Court recently which overturned the conviction with a unanimous verdict. That's how our legal system operates and That is the end of it. There's no avenue to take it to the Privy Council in the UK. It's all over. I just hope that we never have to hear about this man ever again.
1: There have been his supporters, comparing it to Lindy Chamberlain, whose convictions were quashed. First thing, they weren't quashed in the High Court. The High Court declined to hear the case. They were quashed in the Northern Territory Supreme Court. And they were quashed because the evidence that was used to convict her and Michael Chamberlain initially was flawed. It did not actually support the case that she had murdered Azaria. The evidence used in the Pell case has not changed. No new evidence came up. No evidence that was found to be shaky or invalid has come up. And it's based on, not on the interpretation of the law, but the interpretation of what constitutes reasonable doubt and does go to great pains in the summaries I've read to state that not guilty is different to innocent. So Andrew Bolt's gloating of the fact I told you he was innocent all along, well, no, he's not innocent. He's just not guilty based on the High Court's interpretation of how the evidence was presented. He's not out of trouble. This specimen... I think may have to face civil cases and two new accusers came out. Now whether they will pursue it given what the High Court says is still up in the air.
0: Well it will be very interesting to see what happens in in these subsequent cases. Now one of those uh, revelations that has recently come out that was actually subject of a Another court case that was being run concurrently with the case where George Pell was found uh, guilty. They dropped that case after the public prosecutor believed that there wasn't a chance of a verdict and and also one of the defendants pulled out of that one as well. So it makes it difficult to proceed in that particular case. There are eight other cases against George Pell as well. Now, it has to be made clear that these are civil cases, so they're not criminal cases. Cases, But there's civil cases where the claimants are looking at financial retribution and compensation for what happened to them. So there won't be actually any criminal charges laid there. And it's quite possible that George Pearl doesn't even have to go to court for those ones.
1: It's how they got, I mean, it's a different legal jurisdiction. But OJ Simpson ended up having a form of conviction in the civil courts. Now, I know that civil courts don't convict, but he ended up having to pay damages of $130 million, which I understand he hasn't paid, but that debt has stopped him living a life that he might have lived otherwise. George Pell is in his 80s, and I wonder that if enough cases come out, if the people who are backing him, whether that be the church or other interested organisations, will just run out of money or run out of really the will to pay the money
0: and that, and that is one other key factor that all of these cases cost a lot of money to to run and the catholic church is not short of money so if there's any new cases that, that do come up and we do know that there are eight civil cases to come to the victorian court system they'll be defended of course and that's the right of the catholic church to do that but they've got unlimited amounts of money available I mentioned before that I hope that we never hear about George Pell ever again but I don't think that's going to be the case. There are also submissions that were made to the Royal Commission into child sexual abuse that were redacted when they were presented to the courts and they've never actually been made public and they were redacted so that it wouldn't be prejudicial to Pell's cases in Victoria during 2018 but that's all over now. So we'd expect the Attorney General to fully release those submissions and to find out the full details of the allegations against George Powell.
1: Look, it is right that they didn't give him a prejudice case. It's not fair on the victims for him to be able to uh, get out of a proper trial because of things that might prejudice an otherwise reasonable jury. Having said that, We do need to know what these things are now and now there is no further in this case recourse to law it's it's the expense and this is where the system is flawed i'm wondering if we should reform the high court that genuine cases be paid for by the government not so it's not expensive lawyers doing it those who need to go as far as the high court can do so without financial distress.
0: And Well, during the time of coronavirus, the, the courts won't be as busy, politicians won't be as busy, the legal fraternity won't be as, as, as busy. So this could be a project to to deal with during the coronavirus crisis. If there's 12 or 18 months to go, surely they can spend this time of reforming the High Court, reforming the political system. There's so many things that they can keep themselves busy with. The
1: other thing really... I think we should say is that victims of the types of offenses that hell was tried for should be believed should be given proper restitution should be given support should be listened to the statistics are that very very few cases of this type of offense are false or malicious these do exist but in the case of real and it's it's usually sorted out very quickly too who are the real cases and who aren't i think it's important that we continue to support and listen to and help to heal the victims
0: just got a little bit of housekeeping to get through. Our new book, Divided Opinions, that's the review of the 2019 year in Australian politics. It's selling very, very quickly and we're still sitting in the top 10 in the Amazon Australian politics category. Here are some of the comments from our readers. Best Australian political book of the year. Smart, incisive analysis of Australian politics from outside the Canberra press gallery bubble. Well-written, gives a good and correct record of this period. Now, I do have to point out that I didn't actually get any family members to write these up. These are authentic reviews, but, David, this is high praise. I am well, I was thrilled to see
1: them. Um, I don't recognise any of the usernames, and my family used the copies I gave them as toilet paper during the shortage. So, you know, I'll get them other copies and I'll we'll read them then. But, no, in all seriousness, it's a good book. I'd seen some positive comments on Twitter too. People had read it. In all humility, it is important to have alternate views just to make sure the conversation keeps going and to be be held to account and to hold to account. I think
0: if the conversation stops, we're finished. So keep the conversation going. Well, that's right. And if you would like a copy of the book, you can find details of it at our website, newpolitics.com.au forward slash shop. And in these times of crisis, if you'd like to contribute to our journalism and publishing projects, we do have a donate button on the website. David and I do have to buy bread and butter and feed our families with the crumbs, so any contributions are more than welcomed. So that's it for this New Politics podcast. Thanks for listening in, and you can continue the conversation at our website, newpolitics.com.au. I'm Eddie Djokovic. Thanks to everyone, and it's goodbye to our listeners.
1: I'm David Lewis. We'll see you
0: next time.